Hey everyone, Jimmy here from Raptorade with episode 7 of Raptor Rambles. Now in this episode, I've got a real owl geek to introduce you to. Now I'm sure she won't mind me calling her that. I had a great time chatting to her. Uh, It's actually the first time I've properly chatted to Carla. Carla is from the International Owl Centre in Houston, Minnesota. She's the director of it. And in this interview, we find out all about the Owl Centre itself, uh, how it's developed, how Carla has has, uh, put her life and soul into developing the place and how she got into owls in the first place. It's actually a really nice nice story, how, how it all came to be, as we know it. Now... As I said, I've 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 not spoke to Carla properly before. I knew of the Owl Centre and and some of the work that it did, but it was actually this lockdown uh, that I really got to know the Owl Centre because they've been doing some fantastic virtual owl speakers where they've been getting experts from all over the world who focus on owl conservation to come online and chat. You can find some of the recordings on their YouTube channel, which I'll, I'll put a link to in the uh, the bi- biography for this and the description for this episode. And it's well worth a look, as is their website. Uh, they're closed at the moment, as you can imagine, because of the pandemic, but they, they are in, currently developing a new owl centre uh, with the hope of building a new state-of-the-art uh, purpose-built centre for their owls, which is very, very exciting. But Aside from that, Carla explains all the other wonderful things that they do, including the International Festival of Owls that they run, uh, the Owl World of, uh, uh, Hall of Fame sorry, that they have for, for individuals carrying out research on owls, and, and a whole host of other things that, that Carla herself has, has done. But one of the things that I really enjoyed talking to Carla about was the educational aspect and and the the real thought uh, that goes into how how they get their message across about owls but also making sure that that it's well received and people actually actually benefit from it so it was a real real treat and coming from someone like myself who is a self-confessed owl geek but also um, is, is just about to embark on a phd focusing on owls it was it was it was really really nice to to speak to carla and i hope you enjoy the episode next up we have got david anderson from canopy watch again probably a name that not everyone may have come across but again i've come across david because of his work climbing big trees in order to access nests of incredible species such as the harp eagle so i'll be i'll be talking to david a bit later on in in the week and we'll be recording that and that will be going out on the 20th of march so so after this episode episode eight is going to be out on the 20th of march and i'm really looking forward to to talking to david and finding out what it's like to be up amongst some of the biggest trees in the world, but also some of the amazing work he's doing in training the future biologists to get in amongst the canopy. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for that one. But in the meantime, grab a brew, sit back and enjoy listening to Carla Bloom from the International Owl Centre. Right, okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Raptor Rambles. Hope you're all well uh, here in the UK. Uh, yeah, we've just had an announcement today from the Prime Minister that we're, we're on a pathway out of lockdown. So hopefully he hasn't spoke too soon. But uh, anyway, so for the next episode, I'm really pleased to introduce to you all uh, Carla Bloom from the International Owl Centre. Now, I, we've just, me and Carla have just been chatting before I hit the record button uh, because I, we've not we've not really talked before, so I sort of stalked Carla on Facebook because I've been listening to her brilliant virtual owl expert speakers that she's been p- producing, which we'll come on to. Uh, but but I knew I had to I had to get her on because they're doing some fantastic work. When I started reading up on the International Owl Centre, that yeah, there's there's some really cool stuff going on, which I know we're gonna we're gonna cover in this. So welcome, Carla. Thank you for taking the time to chat to me 
No, no problem. Thanks for inviting me. We always start with the same question, which people who listen to this regularly will, will know this. And it's, it's really for, for you to explain sort of what you do. And so obviously you're the director of the International Owl Centre, but how you got there. So where this love of owls came from and, and the sort of, yeah, the, the run up to, to current day. And, and then we'll, we'll roll on from there, basically. It's basically um, not a straightforward story. Uh, I grew up on a farm. My job was raking hay. When I was out there raking hay, the red-tailed hawks would follow me around. So I got interested in birds of prey that way. Um, I was involved in 4-H in high school. So I loved the wildlife project and photography and kind of put the two of those together. And when I went to college, I knew I wanted to do nature things, preferably something with birds of prey, um, got a degree in biology and became a falconer after I graduated and was working several different naturalist positions. And then I had moved to Houston, Minnesota, which is a town of, I think the population sign says 979 people. Okay, very small. The town I moved to decided they wanted to start a nature center um, and the only reason was because it was the trailhead for a bike trail in the, in the region. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a nature center in a town this small. And so here I am, 26 years old, just moved to this town a couple of years ago. They want to start a nature center. And I got involved from the ground up. And um, as a falconer, I had a kestrel that I was flying and obviously could use in education programs. But I mean, they were very good falconry birds not necessarily calm education birds. And I thought in the US, what we were doing at that time primarily is non-releasable owls, um, permanently injured or whatever, could be placed um, as an education bird. So I thought, well, let's get a non-releasable bird to use for education because even before the center was built, other nature center directors were telling me, start doing programming before your center is built because that way you build awareness, support, fundraising, and all those kinds of things. So don't wait, start your programming before it's built. And I thought, well, live bird of prey is great. And I was not finding any birds that were available for placement. So it's in the US, it's very different than the UK where everybody's breeding birds and, it, and they're easily available. That, that doesn't happen much in the United States. Yeah. Um, and finally, I gave up. And then at my best friend's wedding in 1998, she said, oh, you got to talk to this guy. He's a bird guy. He bans eagles in Greenland and does this, that, and the next thing. And, and I talked to him and he mentioned working for a rehabber. Um, and I said, well, does she have any birds that need placement? And he said, yeah, I think she's got a couple of great horned owls she's looking for homes for. And he wrote down Marge Gibson's name on a napkin and her phone number. And that's how I wound up with Alice the Great Horned Owl and that started the whole entire owl thing because I was not into owls before Alice. Um, so Alice fell out of her nest when she was three weeks old. Um, it was in an old squirrel's nest in a pine tree in the city of Antigo, Wisconsin. And Marge is an absolutely phenomenal rehabber and just amazing with birds, period, has been her whole life. And she realized from the initial x-ray that this bird was never going to be able to live in the wild because of the uh, joint injury at the elbow. And, but realized the potential in this young owl to be a very good education bird. So although she took care of the elbow as, as best as possible and the dislocation was reduced, um, there was permanent damage to the growth plate at the end of the humerus. But she socialized her with humans then, knowing she had no chance of living in the wild, but she certainly could be an education bird. And um, Alice functionally became a human imprint and was placed with me then as an education bird. Somebody should have been playing like foreboding music when I was driving home with her because that was the thing that changed my life forever. And you know, basically whole parts of the world for that matter because so much has come out of this. Uh, so I got her in the fall of 1998 and still have her. She'll be turning 24 here in March and started doing educational programs with her. She was the star of the show a few years later when the Nature Center was built. And because it was about tourism as well as environmental education, I thought, how do you put those two things together? And came up with the idea of doing a hatch day party for Alice because everybody liked Alice. She hatched somewhere in March. There's nothing going on in early March in Minnesota. I mean, the snow, the wet, there's snow, weather is pretty unpredictable. 
and we brought in live owls. We did some fun family stuff. And the first year, 300 people showed up. And we thought, well, for our little town, that's a lot of people. We kept doing it. And within a few years, we had people flying here from around the country to little tiny Houston, Minnesota in early March. And we thought, why are people doing this? And then we realized there was nobody in the United States doing anything like this. So people were flocking to our little tiny town to learn more about owls. And as I was lining up speakers, I was getting to know these amazing people who had done such, I mean, just dedicated their lives to owls. I thought, you know, there should be awards for these people. You know, there's all kinds of awards. We should have a World Owl Hall of Fame so we can give public recognition to these people who have just literally dedicated their lives to making the world a better place for owls. I shouldn't be the judge of that. We should have experts from around the world do that. So we started the World Owl Hall of Fame in 2007, I think it was. And then, you know, all these amazing people would come to Houston to receive their awards and speak. So I got to know all these amazing people, but then more and more people were coming to Houston. When we started having more than a thousand people coming to the festival, I mean, that we, we had less than a thousand people in our town. Yeah. Then I started scratching my head saying, well, there's a National Eagle Center, there's an International Wolf Center, there's a North American Bear Center, there's an International Crane Center, all here in the Midwest, mostly Minnesota, one in Wisconsin. Thought there's, there's no owl education center in the United States. There are all kinds of raptor centers, but they're talking about hawks, eagles, falcons, harriers, ospreys, owls. Owls are just a little tiny bit of what they do, but they're so amazing and so diverse and there's so much to owls. I thought, well, if they can do eagle centers, uh, wolves, bears, cranes, why can't we do owls? So we started working on developing an international owl center here in Houston. Um, and I was lucky enough to be able to go to the UK because I thought, well, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. You have all kinds of stuff over there. And Tony Warburton, the founder of the World Owl Trust, uh, was kind enough to let me stay with him and, and worked up a tour, a two-week tour of all these raptor and owl facilities in the UK, which was so amazingly helpful. Yep. Uh, so I could see, well, this will work for us. This is a great idea, but we can't do that in the US. This is a great idea. Ooh, that's, that's, I shouldn't do that. So seeing good, bad, ugly was very important. Um, so in 2015, we finally were able to open a center here. At this stage of the game, we operate out of a storefront, which is a great way to get started, but it's not ideal. Um, so our birds all live off-site out in the country, commute to work to the Owl Center during the day. Um, and right now we've just completed purchasing our future building site and are doing fundraising so that we can build what we actually want to have. So a full center with indoor facility, birds living on site, walk through aviaries down in the in the park, and it's and it's not right in right in downtown Houston. <laughs> I mean, most people chuckle at downtown Houston, but we still have traffic going by and that's not what the owls enjoy. They would rather be in a park setting. So that's kind of the long convoluted way of how on earth I wound up doing what I'm doing and why on earth we have an international owl center in a town of less than a thousand people in the middle of nowhere. Well, I mean, it sounds like it was meant to be, to be honest. And, and yes, from the napkin at the wedding, you know, and you, you turning up obviously in Houston and the, and the park being, the park being built, that's, uh, it's, that's wonderful. It's lovely to, it's, uh, as we discussed before, before we came on and recorded, um, it's lovely to hear about the Great Horned Owl because you're right, what people listening into this might need to remember is that the laws are completely different, really. Well, in, in the UK, there's very few laws in order to own a bird of prey that's, that's catnip bred, so sadly in my opinion anyone can go out and buy a great horned owl or a barn owl or with with no experience whatsoever whereas obviously in the states in america it's very very strictly ran well it's 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 a legal requirement isn't it to to uh, have a sit an apprenticeship and and um so which really yeah it's, so it's it's worth bearing that in mind but I'm, I'm glad you met alice funnily enough the first owl i ever worked with was a great horned owl called heidi um i, I think uh yeah so i i was 15 14 or 15 and my dad knew a farmer uh, my dad is a farmer so one of his farmer friends and he said oh you should i'll take you to meet george and uh and george was like george was lovely old boy he got some harris hawks and bits and pieces and he, i think he just liked birds because he had 
chickens and pheasants anyway and he, he said to me i went out with him a few times and then one one i think the following year he said jimmy you know how would you how would you like a, a bird to um you know to look after over the summer holidays the six weeks you can take one of my birds have it at home and you know work with it and he gave me this great horned owl heidi and i looked after it but when i look back now knowing what i know about great horned owls and working with owls i couldn't have really it couldn't be the one of the worst species in in, in the sense that you know temperamental she, i always remember she used to have a vice like grip and i probably only had like knowing me i probably only had like a little single thickness glove so so yeah but it's it's lovely to hear you know that alice is still with you and and that it's come from there so the the center's situated next to the park or adjacent to the park or within the park and your what how many birds have you got that you currently use and and obviously what, what's the time scale covid and pandemic permitting and all fundraising for developing it further have you got a time scale um if all goes beautifully and perfectly hopefully within five years because we do need to raise i mean in the us when we do a center where it's really cold, we have to have really good indoor facilities. Um, so we're looking at needing to raise a few million dollars yeah. um, and major architectural planning, and we're doing some unique things. Um, so although I've looked at aviaries in Germany and in the UK, uh, what we do here has to be different. We have West Nile virus here, so we need to screen against insects, but yet we have snow load that we have to deal with also. So how do you combine those two things in a large aviary setting um, structurally? So actually right now we're doing a design concept contest that isn't necessarily your typical architectural contest where, okay, we're gonna hire an architect out of this. It's how do we meet some of these physical, structural and um, needs of the bird, some of the challenges that this is gonna face. So there's, there's a lot of things we have to figure out that haven't necessarily been figured out before to do what we wanna do. So the center itself, as we build it, will be at the edge of town in a park. Where we are right now is right on Main Street in Houston in a brick building. So the pro, the pro just so again, because most of our listeners probably will be from the UK. When you talk about your programs, just go into a little bit of detail. What sort of things did you start doing? What, you know, in order to encourage people or engage people in owls? What, what what do those and, and what what do you do now as well as the as the international owl center yeah so one of our focuses is really on how you do education with live birds um so actually we at the world owl conference in portugal in 2019 i did um uh, co-led with jim duncan from canada a workshop on effective owl education methods because it's different in different places so in the uk um, usually you've got flying owls during a good chunk of the program. In the US, that's rarely done. You will find some that have flying owls, not many. Sometimes you need special permission from the federal government to be able to fly your birds. And so I've kind of looked at, and then in some countries like India, we saw um, in the virtual owl speaker series last night, it's illegal to use live owls in education. It's illegal in Norway, Sweden, Israel, Nepal, India, and I'm sure many other countries. So how they do owl education is different. And there's even some difference within the US, but it seems like each country kind of has their way of doing education. And the standard in the United States is, you know, we've got all the permitting and whatever, and the birds can only be possessed for education, but very often it's bird on a fist. So they're just statically standing there on the fist. And remember that a lot of them in the United States are non-releasable, so they may have wing injuries, whatever. Um, but they're generally standing on a fist while you're talking during a, doing a presentation. The way we do presentations is a little bit different. Um, so our presentations are generally a program that doesn't involve a bird. Um, and we, we have a variety of different programs. We have one that's a, literally a game show, which doesn't work during COVID because people can't be close and touching things. Um, we have one that's for little kids. It's a build an owl program, which we can adapt online during COVID. We have one on owls and lore and culture. We've got one on owl identification. We have other various specialty programs like on my vocal study or on the travels of our little stuffed traveling mascot that has visited people all over the world doing owl things. Um, so we do basically usually a PowerPoint program or um, the hands-on ones with the younger kids. 
And then at the end of the program, then we take a bird out on the fist and kind of review what we covered during the program. Because there's some debate about um, using live owls in programming and how much information people retain when the bird's on the fist. So as we all know, when there's a bird on the fist or a bird flying, everybody's focused on the bird, right? So are they able to retain as much information as without a bird and then using the bird to highlight at the end. So the way we at the Owl Center do things is we do the presentation without the bird. So people are really focused on the information. Then the bird is out on the fist and we do have some that will fly back to perches and stuff um, without food motivation. They're just, it's habit. They just know I come out, I do this, I go back to my perch. So they're like, well, I'll just fly back myself. <laughs> so it's not even food motivated, it's just routine. They just do it anyway. So that's kind of the, the capstone of let's review what we learned. And then, um, then they get to see the bird and it's kind of the, the carrot at the end of the stick. You know, you sat through the program, here's your reward. That's how we do it. And then after that, we conclude every program. Our whole point, our whole mission at the Owl Center is to make the world a better place for owls. So just simply giving people owl information is something we want to do, but we want to go the step farther because people leave here, you know, knowing owls are really amazing, right? We want to help them. So let's give them the tools to do that. Let's empower them. So every program concludes with, this is what you personally can do to help owls. And we've got, and it's not fluffy things like give us money so we can do stuff. It's things that people can do in their own lives and different things apply to different people. Um, so some of them are use traps instead of rodenticides to control rodents because um, when you poison a mouse or a rat or whatever, it doesn't die immediately. And even after it does die, whatever eats it is going to be poisoned. And that's a significant problem for owls and other raptors. Most people aren't aware of that. And pretty much everybody that hears that is never going to use poison again because they don't want to poison an owl or a hawk or their cat or dog or whatever. Other things are using less paper because we all use paper. Paper is made from trees. Uh, where they're growing trees for paper, they're not letting them get old and have cavities where owls can nest. And very often they're clear cutting them when they're done, which is not great for much of anything. Um, so we encourage people to reuse paper. The paper we use at the Owl Center usually is coming from the library across the street where people have printed off one thing and oops, it's not what they wanted. They put it in the recycling, but it's blank on one side. Yeah. So we our coloring sheets and scavenger sheets and membership forms on the reused paper and then we recycle but we're very careful when we buy recycle when we buy paper we buy 100% recycled paper most is only 30% but we as consumers vote with our money if we are all actively seeking and purchasing 100% recycled paper guess what they're going to make um, leaving dead trees standing when it's safe very often we get people that come in, oh, I bought some land and I want to do it for wildlife and I'm cleaning it up. I got rid of the dead trees and I just cringe because dead trees are amazing and they're wildlife hotels. This is where owls need to nest. So many species need a cavity and that's a dead or a dying tree. Um, and it's not just owls. There's woodpeckers and all kinds of other critters that need those dead and dying trees. So leaving them standing when it's safe is important. Um, if it's next to your house, okay, you need to do something about it. But if you can wait, don't do the trimming or the cutting until late summer or early fall when nothing is nesting in it. Because every spring, there's people trimming trees, cutting trees. Oh my gosh, there were baby owls that either were killed or need to be nested, re-nested somewhere else or go to a rehabber or something. Um, and there's other things too, like take down unused barbed wire or take down soccer nets when they're not in use. Um, put caps on um, the vents on vault toilets because owls will go down there and wind up literally in the goo of the toilet and die there. So on our website, we have an owls and humans section. And in there, there's a list of about 19 things people can do to live an owl friendly life. And there's probably other things too, but that's, that's our goal. That's meant to be the take home message to say, okay, you learned about owls, hopefully you were inspired. And now here's what you as an individual can do. So if everybody we reach does just one thing different in their life to help owls, it's going to make a difference, especially if they tell other people. So that's really our goal with education is not just to say, yay, aren't owls cool, but to take that a step further and say, humans are their biggest problem in countries like the UK and the United States. We're not intentionally harming them. 
it's unintentionally. So we just have to be aware of what we're doing and we can change behaviors to make a difference. From my point of view, that was really interesting to listen to because when I started Raptor Aid, and I, as I mentioned to you, coming from a captive bird of prey background, extent, most of my career was working with captive birds of prey. I made a conscious decision not to not to work with captive birds of prey and it wasn't it, it was partly probably because i'd had an you know I'd, I'd spent so many years working with captive birds of prey and i didn't want to have any that, that the maintenance and the care from them um so so yeah it's really interesting to hear how you are developing programs or have developed your programs you know where you because you're restricted you can't necessarily do the flying displays which you know people go go you know in the uk is, is probably one of the biggest selling points for for a bird of prey center or, or a collection but also what i found really interesting and this is something that that again not a lot of people really think about when it comes to giving demonstrations and you've touched on it and this is something that i picked up at jemima's place at the international center for birds of prey as well is Yes, when you're doing a flying display and you're talking about the birds, 99% of what you're saying is not going in because the, the people are watching the birds. And so you can fly a, a barn owl for them and tell them all about, you know, habitat and, you know, all the impacts from traffic and water troughs and rodenticides. But if you ask them that, you gave them a quiz at the end of it, night i can yeah they, they probably won't even remember what the owl's name is because they're so so yeah it's, it, that's wonderful it's really nice to hear you know how you've 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 developed these programs and also like you say it's it's giving people those take-home things because a lot of conservation organizations they 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 give these programs or you know workshops and then really it's like yeah give us the money and we'll go and we'll go and do the work but yeah you've got to empower people because then people take ownership for things don't they and then they will do it themselves and they will care for things so so uh good on you that's that's uh that's brilliant how um obviously you're called the international owl center and i think something we need to touch on as well is that based in the usa but you have one of the things I've really found impressive reading up about the, the center and learning about the center over the last few weeks, listening to your, your, your speak, virtual owl expert series is you've got a global reach. And so maybe that we could talk about the owl hall of fame as well. You touched on that then. How, how have you found that has developed and is, are you you're obviously you must be proud of it because you have got such a global reach now when it comes to owls and your connections so maybe just talk a little bit about the hall of fame and how that's come about yeah the world owl hall of fame is i mean when we do our festival of owls in march that is my favorite 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 part um because it gives me a chance to personally meet these people who are doing amazing things all over the world the hard thing is getting the nominations submitted for the Hall of Fame, because most owl people are pretty humble and they're few and far between. So they're not going to nominate themselves. Um, and somebody has to know the full body of what they're doing to be able to adequately write a good nomination. So it's really hard to get the people who should get the, the awards nominated. Um, so that's one of the challenges we face. And then the judges, we, I try and have a mix of judges that have experience with rehabilitation, um, captive bird education, conservation, research, legislation, um, kind of all the different types of things that you can do. So there are three awards that the World Owl Hall of Fame gives. The Champion of Owls Award is kind of like the, the lifetime achievement but to get that, you need to be working on more than a continent-wide basis. So you need to be um, touching more than just your area, uh, or at least a continent-wide basis. Um, but usually they have their fingers in more than one continent. Um, you have to be working in more than one field. So if you are just a strict academic, you aren't going to get the Hall of Fame award because it, is that really making a difference in the world? Or, I mean, you've got to reach people. And if you're just publishing in scientific journals, that's not reaching the bulk of the people on the planet. Um, it, it's pretty limited reach, you know, but you, if you've got a lot of grad students and you're churning out more and more owl researchers, that's something also. 
Um, and they have to have at least minimum 20 years working with owls. Um, then we also have the Special Achievement Award, and that covers kind of a, a few different things. So one, you might get somebody who's doing amazing stuff, but just in one field, like they might just be doing education or just be doing research or one very specific gigantic project, or they could be doing everything, but on a smaller scale, like just in the UK or just in the Netherlands or maybe you know just in Minnesota. So if they've got a, a much more limited geographic reach, but they're still doing just all this amazing stuff, that would qualify for a special achievement award also. And then we do have an award that we haven't given much lately, and that's the Lady Grail Award. And that one is for owls, not for people. Because I realized early on, and anybody who's worked with a lot of birds knows, there are some individual birds that are just really special. Now, obviously they're working with a person, but you get some of these birds that have been part of research and education or specific rehabilitation efforts or developing new techniques or um, conservation, very specific work in conservation. Um, so for the owls, they have to have their foot in more than one field. So they can't just be an education bird. They can't be just a bird that's been used um, in rehab programs. They have to do multiple things. So Lady Grail, who the award is named after, was a great gray owl from Canada. I don't know if you're familiar with Lady Grail. She worked with Bob Nero up in Winnipeg. He was kind of a major pioneering great gray owl uh, researcher. But uh, Lady Grail was rescued from her nest. It was a nest of, I think, five youngsters. And very often in great gray owl nests, that little one isn't going to make it and it's gonna get eaten by its sibling. And after a couple visits to the nest, it was clear that one was not gonna make it. And he had this idea, and this was why, this was before this was a big thing. Um, he had the idea that if this owl could be saved, he could use it in education and other things. So it was saved. Um, she was a human imprint, worked with Bob forever, and he did school programs. But when he did school programs, the kids had to study owls first and they had to raise a minimum amount of money for them to come. And that money then went and funded graduate students who were studying owls. So it was kind of this neat thing. And, he, and great gray owls were kind of obscure. Nobody really knew much about them. Um, the public didn't really know much about them. And Lady Grail just kind of put them front and center in the spotlight. They would do stints in the mall, teaching people about owl conservation and raising money for owl conservation and grad students and whatever. Um, and he was able to publish research based on what he learned of her behavior and molt. And she was just this really amazing bird that had her foot in more than, than one pot. I mean, part of research and helping researchers understand them and a lot of education, a lot of, I mean, the great gray owl became the provincial bird of Manitoba, probably in large part because of Lady Grail. Um, and she died, unfortunately, two weeks before I was going to be able to meet her. Oh, no. uh, was 22 years old or so. So we named the award in her honor for owls that have done amazing things. So we, we've gotten some, some birds have been given awards, um, like our Alice has been given an award because she was involved in obviously the education and starting everything here. But um, great, great, great horned owls were on Minnesota's unprotected birds list when I got her. Like, how can you do that? They're federally protected, but our state law said they were not protected. Um, so we wound up testifying in front of the House and Senate Environment Committees to get that law changed. So she actually got the very first great horned owl permit in the state of Minnesota. So that was kind of cool. Um, and then research. I mean, she started the whole vocalization research thing. She was the focal point and the behavior. She's the one that's helped me under, understand that. So it's, it's that kind of a thing. But we haven't had many nominations lately of, but there are some out there. I know there's some out there, but they have to be really special birds that are doing quite a lot more than, than just education. So that's, that's kind of the World Owl Hall of Fame. And that this year, as you've mentioned, this virtual owl expert speaker series that we have, the Hall of Fame kind of led into that because I felt so blessed that I got to meet 
all these people from around the world and personally talk to them. You know, if I have questions, I don't have to look it up in a book because it might not even be in a book. I know who to email and they're happy to give me answers or say what we don't know and or connect me with other people. And I felt so blessed that we had that going on here. And when we went through our second COVID shutdown here and had to have our facility closed, I thought, you know, we need to do online education. I was before, but it was just our staff doing things. I thought, let's see if some of these people would be willing to speak um, just to everybody because we're the whole world's locked down. I mean, we're all in the same boat. It's not like it's just one country or one continent. We're, we're all in the same boat. And they were willing and we got some sponsors and people and I thought, let's make it free so that everybody can watch because our goal is to reach as many people as possible. That's the whole point. Let's, let's all know more, not just us know more. Let's everybody know more. Um, and it's, it's been a phenomenal success. And these owl people are just happy to speak and share what they know. And obviously they're passionate about what they're doing and happy to answer questions. And there's so many questions. We have a one hour, normally a one hour question and answer period, and we almost never get through all the questions. Yeah. Um, it's just been this fantastic exchange of information born of COVID. And it's our last one this winter will be March 7th, but we're planning to continue this in future winters also. Yeah, well, it's, we, we talked about this and, and, and I explained to you that's exactly the same idea or thought that, that I had when yeah, when when UK went into the first lockdown and I started these Facebook Live interviews, um, and yeah, because I I sat at home and thought, wow, I know all these amazing researchers. Some people, like you say, that just work in my local raptor study group that no one will have ever heard of. But Brian Etheridge in the Scottish raptor study group has got over 30 years experience monitoring raptors in Scotland and we got Brian on and he was fantastic and you know all and, and then obviously worldwide Jason Abanias from the Philippine Eagle Foundation and that's what led on to this podcast and and it's probably why I've enjoyed your speaker series so much you know I yeah because because I've met people that I via the virtual speakers that I've never come across before so Jonathan Hoare is another one you know out in South Africa um, I, I'm not, I, I followed his work, not knowing it was him on Facebook, on social media, but to hear him talk about it. And one of the things I loved, we do a lot of our, or I try and do a lot of our pellet dissection stuff here because uh, it's very popular with it, as you'll know, with the kids. But then to see the level that Jonathan does it in South Africa, I was blown away. I was like, wow, this is another level. Um, and the engagement that he got from it. So yeah, it's been it's been a wonderful thing. Now, just so people listening know, some of these are most of them are recorded and they're available on your YouTube channel. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. So the whether they're recorded and saved depends on a few things. So if the person is someone who normally generates revenue for their organization by speaking engagements, then those normally aren't saved because that's kind of shooting them in the in the foot. And then also sometimes there's unpublished data in some of the presentations. So then sometimes those, or sometimes sensitive data in the presentation that shouldn't just be freely available to anybody. So those are not saved. The other ones are saved. So if you go to YouTube and search International Owl Center, you'll find our channel, or we have a playlist of the virtual owl expert speaker series ones that have been saved. Brilliant. So it's, yeah, anyone listening, if you're into owls or just in, into interesting people, really, then then uh, yeah, check it out because I've absolutely loved it. Now, where to go next? There was a couple of things. I feel that we should probably talk about uh, Festival of Owls, but you did mention something else that I want to talk about. That, that, and that's, um, you mentioned about vocalizations in Great Horned Owls. And I know, again, from reading about you, this is something you've done extensive research into. So do you want to just touch on you know what you've done and your your research and what i suppose it's one of your real passions specifically with owls yeah the great horned owl vocalization research is not something i set out to do i set out to do education and then i wind up with this human imprint she's thinking i'm her mate and she's doing all of her vocalizations towards me but she expects me to respond as a male great horned owl and of course i'm clueless i don't know what i'm doing she's getting mad because i'm not doing it right so I go to the scientific literature to look up, you know, what am I supposed to do? What do these vocalizations mean? And found out nobody had ever studied 
their vocalizations and their repertoire. And it's a common species in all of North America and nobody had studied it. I was totally dumbfounded that this hadn't been studied. And as I asked around, David Johnson, the director of the Global Owl Project finally said, well, you need to do the study. I'm like, me? What? I, huh? And finally, he got me convinced. So back in 2004, I started. And of course, Alice is a base, which was handy because she's giving me a, a total open window into the life of a female great horned owl and behaviors, vocalizations. And I knew her very, very well because I both lived and worked with her. Um, what she was, you know, is she upset? Is she nesty? Is she, I mean, I, I could tell quite well what she was trying to communicate, even though I didn't understand the words. But of course, I need wild owls to confirm this. So I'm working with the wild owls in the area. And in, almost right away, when I started recording the wild ones, I realized, wow, I can tell these birds apart. Because I had, it probably helped that I had had Alice for several years first. And I had heard thousands and thousands of her territorial hoots, which were always the same. So then when I heard finally paid attention to the wild ones, like, hey, wait a minute, that bird always sounds this way. That bird always sounds that way. I can tell these birds apart by voice. Wow, how cool is that? So you could track individuals without having to capture them, ban them or any of that stuff. So that I had started the vocal study to learn the repertoire and the associated behaviors. Because if you're a researcher and you go out at night and you're studying great horned owls, most of the time you don't see what they're doing. But if you hear them and know, oh, that vocalization is given by a male when he's bringing food to the female or digging in the nest, all of a sudden the world opens up and you know what's going on even though you can't see it. So that was my initial goal. Let's understand all the vocalizations and the behavioral context. Who does them? Is it adults? Is it juveniles? Is it males? Is it females? So that you could understand what the heck was going on when you couldn't see them. That was the point. And then there was this whole individual recognition thing, which was really cool. And then as we got into it farther and I was collecting um, all the, this is before everything was digital and online, collecting all the recordings from the sound library, you know, Cornell and Bohr Lab Bioacoustics and kind of all over. And this was like literally you had to email them and they would have to mail you a CD and, you know, different these days. Yeah. But realizing, okay, all the vocalizations are not there, but the ones in South America sound totally different than the ones in North America. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not within the range of what they're supposed to sound like. Now, complicating things, there were some misidentified birds in there, um, which I was able to say, that's not the voice quality of a great horned owl and found some experts that could say, one was actually a hawk, one was okay. a different species. So then I had to email Cornell and say, um, those are mislabeled. Okay, let's get those out of there. Now, what do we have left? And especially now with Xenocanto and places where people can post their own recordings, and there's more and more, there's a bigger body of work in South America. I realized, wow, there's regional variation going on. But there's not supposed to be regional variation in owls because their vocalizations are hardwired. Um, they don't learn them. So songbirds, sure, they learn their vocalizations. You get regional dialects. Owls aren't supposed to do that. So why did they sound different there and dramatically different? And then you've got the argument about is the Magellanic subspecies or is it a full species? I mean, I clearly 100% know that it's a different species. You probably do also. But the scientific data isn't solid enough for all the ornithological unions to support that. So the American Ornithologist Union considers it a Bubo virginianus, which it isn't. But part of what was missing was nobody had looked at the Negressin subspecies, which is more similar to the Magellanicus than to the Nakarutu subspecies. But then that gets into vocalizations in owls generally are linked to their genetic diversity. If they sound different, their genetics tend to be different. You know, that's how they found the different Scops owls in, owls in South America or Africa. So this is exciting to look at because does that lend credibility to these being different species? And are all the other uh, great horned owls or the other buboes in South, South America actually different species too? So that's a paper that I've collaborated with a statistical wizard because this is, I mean, I, I understand the vocalizations, the complicated statistical analyses, not so much. Yeah. So we're working on a paper on that also. Um, so it's just branched into so many things. And then the vocal development, because I realized I could look at the wild ones and Alice 
and webcams, but on a webcam, you only get what's going on at the nest. You don't get everything else. I realized to really understand everything, I needed a captive breeding pair. So I got a non-releasable pair. They both have eye injuries, but otherwise are fine. Um, and put them in a big breeding and release training facility outfitted with seven security cameras and microphones. And they were able to raise three batches of young so we could look at that vocal development. Because when do they hoot? When do they sound like adults? I mean, how are you ever gonna figure that out in the wild? Good luck with that. So we were able to look at that too. So it's kind of veered off in all these different ways. So it's been, yeah, since 2004, just kind of total immersion in great horned owl vocalizations. And the, the, the breeding, um, breeding and release training facility is on my property and all the cams are piped into my living room. So yeah, so I've kind of been living great horned owl vocalizations for couple decades so you, you, you don't need cable tv because you can just watch <laughs> we, have we haven't got time to watch cable tv by the sounds of things i mean it is wonderful yeah i was just thinking that when you mentioned the scops owls because that's essentially how they've split a lot of a lot of the species that scops owls on or you know all these different islands as well is is and it is fascinating and, and it kind of links into what I was talking to you about before one of the speakers, uh, the expert speakers you had on, um, I'm going to get a name wrong again now. So I'll let you, what, uh, is it Marjan? Uh, the, the J is pronounced like a Y. So it's Marianne. Marianne. Marianne's work with Eurasian Eagle Owls and you had her on as a virtual speaker. It's so interesting because it, because it is, it's such a different world to, to a human, this nocturnal, predominantly nocturnal uh, for most species. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. But what makes me laugh listening to you talk about that, Carla, is when, when obviously before we kept, come on, I always have to ask people just to make sure I introduce them properly. And you laughed at me when you when I said, "Is it a doctor, Carla Bloom?" And and this is there's a PhD right there. If there is if there isn't enough research, then I don't know what's what's good enough for a PhD. So so uh, yeah, I've I've not known you very long. I'm just saying that was yeah, that's it's fascinating. But uh, yeah, I, it's it's really interesting. And one of the things that I was, which I loved when I when I was, and I think I mentioned it in an email to you, talking about your research. And there's something that, well, I'm about to start a PhD. Well, I've started a PhD a few weeks ago. But on your website, there's a you've got a page about uh, advising people on what to look out for in owls. I think it's directed at photographers, if I remember rightly. So that you know different signals and um, that owls give off, and and so that that's a large, essentially a large part of what I'm looking at with with the PhD is how owls signal and express themselves. There's so much. I'm preaching to the converted, really talking to you about this but for me there's so much that an owl's face tells you you know they've got big eyes they've got diff and, and when you start looking at it in this detail of well why do they have those white feathers down the, the sides of their beak and why do some have longer feather, longer sort of bristles around their beak and the superciliums different color and facial discs obviously predominantly is for audio but some are different co different colors compared to the rest of the plumage and feather tufts you you talk about in in on that page about blinking as well and how owl and I've never come across anyone out. I'm not uh, talking about going back to the literature for for vocalization in great horned owls and there's been nothing there. I've it's something that I've noticed and a couple of friends have with owls and their possible way of communicating by blinking. And you, you're the first person I've ever come across who's written about it for me. You, you, maybe you might be able to tell me otherwise that there's that there are people obviously who've looked at throat patches and how white throat patches for communication and, and feather tufts and, and false feather tufts in some of the glycidiums. Uh, but yeah, it was, that was really interesting. So I think there's too much to talk about now, but going on, I'm sure I'm going to have to, we'll, we'll have to talk about this and I think I'll probably be coming back to you to help me with, with my PhD, but the re research you're doing is just, yeah, it, it's brilliant. I, um, and people can find all, obviously all about that on your website. Now, going back a little bit, uh, we have to talk about, fest let's talk about Festival of Owls. I'm trying to keep an eye on time and make sure we fit everything in. Uh, just talk a bit about the Festival of Owls, because it sort of links into, obviously, your educational message hugely, but also the international presence that, that 
um, as well, because you've already touched on it a bit that you've had a festival in Portugal, one in there was, uh, and, and other parts of the world. So maybe just touch a bit about that, the festival. Yeah. So literally, the Festival of Owls started as a hatch day party for Alice, and it's kind of morphed into this huge thing. Um, but it's all about you know bringing people together and doing about like everything we can think of with owls. Um, so people say, well, what 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 is the festival about? And it's like, well, it's got its own web page because there's so much in there. Um, so obviously in the United States, we include live owl programs with that. And that's kind of like the bread and butter and the backbone of our festival. Um, we have another facility come in that has more. We only have seven owls of four species at this time. So we have another facility that come in that has more owl species, including a snowy, which is uncommon in the United States. And of course, everybody loves snowy owls. And we have a flying barn owl, which is a big deal in the United States. Um, so we have them come in and those are our, our big programs. We also have the World Owl Hall of Fame Award uh, winners speak um, and the Champion of Owl Award winner normally speaks at a banquet on Saturday night. We do owl prowls where we go out and call in wild owls and of course go over why you shouldn't be doing it all the time and the ethics of calling owls because there's a whole lot that goes with it and some people are 100% opposed to calling them in any context. We do it in a very limited fashion and make sure that we're not repeatedly calling owls in the same places over and over again and caution people about that. Um, we do owl pellet dissections, we do owl nest box building, all kinds of owl themed crafts for kids, owl themed food, and the whole town gets into it. So, you know, if you go to Barista's coffee shop, they've got, well, all year round, they have all kinds of owl decorations there always, but they'll have owl themed beverages and owl mugs during owl fest. And um, sometimes the grocery store, I think, has even done owl cookies and I think the bar once had some owl themed beer there and so it's kind of all over over town um oh behind me the international children's owl art contest that's huge that's taken on a life of its own started out as a local coloring contest now it's a highly competitive international contest well i was gonna people can't see this and i was gonna bring this up as a bit of a feel-good thing at the end so you've you've beat me to it because i i only saw this the other day following you on Facebook so but people can't see this because it's a podcast but behind Carla is a uh, only a, a tiny snapshot of some of the artwork for this um for the yeah the children's owl art com competition now I went on you've started sharing obviously this artwork on on Facebook and the winners and I was absolutely blown away if you want a feel-good moment whether you're interested in owls or not some of this the standard of artwork that these these children that they're producing is phenomenal it's and what blows me away is you look obviously you see the the the, the artwork first and you go wow that's good and then you look down in the corner and it's got the the child's name and their age and you're like they're nine years old or 14 years old or so, yeah, I mean, how many entries did you get this year for it? Um, I think this year we had about 2,750 from 49 different countries. Wow. Yeah, so very heavy on Asia and Eastern Europe. For whatever reason, there's lots of art schools and incredibly talented kids in those areas also. I'm very thankful I am not a judge. We have three retired art professors that do the judging and they very much enjoy it. But it's a massive job to coordinate that many pieces of art and get them in front of the judges. We use a gymnasium and lay them all out <laughs> in rows and the judges then work there. So it's a, it's a few hour process for the judging, but organizing it is a massive, en enormous job. So besides just the winners, as you mentioned, we have a gallery of staff picks on our Facebook page. So I think we have 144 that besides the winners that are on there because there's so many amazing ones we can't give them all awards but we want to share them and then we've selected 20 of them that will be made into a set of greeting cards um, that you can get on our website or in person here and those are extremely popular some people just buy them because they want to keep them so they can have little miniature versions of the art themselves and some people use them i use tons of them because they're they're just astoundingly amazing these many of these kids are professional level artists already um, and they're not 18. 18 is the oldest to enter. So this, this contest, and we've, we've used it for other things too. 
So the street banners on the light poles in town are art from the kids owl art contest. So if you drive through Houston, there's 18 of them on light poles in town, which is fantastic to see. They're the bright, colorful, close up owl face ones. And we did a special exhibition with the Museum of Russian Art up in Minneapolis um, because we had a couple years ago, we had about 2000 entries just from Russia and former Soviet states and they were just amazing. So we did, we try and do special exhibitions as much as we can because we feel a kind of a duty because there's so much good artwork and there is no way we can send it back because it's almost, it's mostly foreign. And when you have thousands of foreign pieces of artwork, we would go broke <laughs> trying to send it back. We just can't. So we try to get it used in as many ways as possible. Yeah. And one of the things I loved about it as well is you're, you're absolutely right. It is most of it is professional. These kids could sell this work. It's that good. But is one of the things I love is the imagination. Some of them, when you look mm. at you go what a wonderful way of looking at an owl because it's not necessarily uh, a lot of them for me aren't you, you, they're not a nat necessarily a, a natural pose of an owl sat in a tree or you know in a, some of them are really out there and you think yeah only a kid could draw that you know I don't know maybe as an old man I'm getting old I, you, I'd lose you lose a bit of this this childlike imagination which is what makes them amazing as well for me but that's <laughs> Yeah, that's me. Yeah, people need to check out the Facebook page because I can't, yeah, I can't credit it enough. And well done you, you know, the, in the International Centre, 2,700 odd, you know, pieces of art and, and getting it all together and getting it looked at. And, and yeah, credit credit to the credit to the International Owl Center and yeah the professors for taking the time to, to look at it because it is it, it's it's wonderful. It's really, really and the happy. kids for doing the art because the kids, I mean. They're just amazing. The way their brains work and their talent. I mean, the kudos to all the kids that enter because it's just astounding. I mean, we'd love to give awards to, you know, at least 50% of them, but we just can't. So to win an award is, I mean, this is high level. Yeah. If yeah. an award in this contest, because it is so competitive. Absolutely. Now to finish off then, uh, well, I normally have one question that I always finish off with, but before we, we do, we, we, um, you know, I ask you that question. Um, what's, what's the plan for, obviously again, ignore the pandemic if we can, um, the next year, the, the festival of owls and, and what's, what's the plan going forward over the next 12 months for the international owl center? What's, what's on the agenda? Um, well, focusing on the future facility. I mean, so we'll gradually reopen here. We've been open. We were closed November, middle of November to the middle of January. Then we've been open just Saturdays. Now we're adding Fridays also. And then once we get into March, we'll add Sundays and just kind of see where people's comfort level is with traveling with COVID. Um, so our, our full schedule is being open four days a week. And then the three days a week, we're not open. We're available for online programs. So because we only have one program space, we have to have to do that at this time. Um, so wrapping up the architectural design concept contest in April, that should be done by then. Um, and then look at, okay, hiring construction management firm in fundraising for uh, so that we're ready to hire an architectural firm, work with them. Um, I, I assume we're not going to finish that in the next 12 months. But um, that's the direction we're heading. And then it's, okay, here's the concept, here's how much it's gonna cost, the major fundraising, and then actually actually building. But we'll continue that virtual owl expert speaker series probably in January, February next year when our, our slowest months are because it's cold and people don't like to go out then. And then the International Festival of Owls is always the first weekend in March every year. Brilliant. But if you're entering the art contest, the deadline is always the middle of January because we need to have time to process, manage, and get it in front of judges, and then get it displayed before the festival. So if you're interested in the art contest, that deadline is always the middle of January. Brilliant. Well, yeah, I'll, um, I'll, I'll try and push it, get some UK children. Um, you know, let's get some kids from the UK involved in that, as, um, definitely. So yeah, we'll, we'll push that with, we're out there. Well, best of luck with the development. Um, and yeah, the facility, I'm, I'm looking forward to to seeing how it how it comes on um, it's exciting times uh, so my question that i always finish on carla 
is one piece of advice. If you were to give one piece of advice to, let's be a bit specific, one budding owl biologist, a budding owl biologist, what young or old, what would it be? What's your one bit of advice? Um, well, I probably have two. Okay. Read, read a lot. Well, no, I'm going to say three things. Read a lot. But bear in mind that not everything written about owls is accurate. There's a whole lot of inaccurate stuff in owl books. So question it and observe, do your own observations because I read stuff in owl books regularly and say, wait a minute, that can't be true. And then check it if you can. Like we, we are able to use dead specimens here. So then you can, we can check some things on dead specimens and say, um, no, that's not what they wrote in the book. We, we've got direct evidence right here. So read a lot, go outside a lot and do a lot of observations, but, but question what you read and think critically about it. Because if you just accept everything that's written, um, you're probably accepting a lot of things that actually aren't accurate. So it's important to question things. Don't just take everything at face value. Think about it and say, does that sound right? Does that match what I'm seeing or what I'm hearing or what I'm experiencing? So you need the experience and you need the reading, but think critically about it in the process. Superb, brilliant. Uh, yeah, couldn't agree more. Excellent, right, Carla. Um, thank you very much for taking the time to uh, to chat to me. I'll I'll make sure that um, in the, the the bio for the podcast, I'll include the website and uh, and a link to the Facebook page and and the the Ooh. Festival of Owls um, International Festival of Owls webpage as well. Now I know it's got a separate webpage as well. So uh, I'll I'll leave you to it. Ooh. Thank you very much for for chatting to us. You're welcome. I always like to talk about owls, as you can tell. Woo! Mm -hmm.